Amen. Hello. Yes. God, who is just thankful to be alive and kicking today? Do I have any alive and kicking people in here? Come on, just keep remember, wake them up, shake them up. Let's go. It's time to build. Say it with me. It's time to build. It's time to build. I'm so excited. I've been living. There's a little tiny book in the Old Testament called Haggai. It's only about, I think, 37 verses in it. So it's so doable. But it is just absolutely one of my favorite books in the Bible. Because it's about building a place for God to dwell right in the center of the people of God so that the people of God can show the world what God is like. So when I read this little book called Haggai, this prophetic book, something, whenever I'm just in that season of reading through this part of the Bible specifically, something just really clicks and connects with my spirit. Because we're builders. Here with us a few weeks ago on our podcast or our website, we, we, we unpacked how humans are hardwired builders. You mean you take a couple two-year-olds and give them a bucket? You don't even need to give them a bucket. I, I retract that. Put them in the sand or the dirt and they will build something. Just shake your head. We are made to build stuff. But the beauty of the thing God's inviting us into in this season is He's inviting us to build something together for His glory and our good. And for the sake of His name. So before we dive into the book of Haggai, it is no surprise, nor is it a secret, that I'm a massive fan of a resource online called The Bible Project. Raise your hand if you've heard of it. I've preached and talked about it a half a billion times. They have, it's this amazing scholar named Dr. Tim Mackey, and he has accountability to Western Seminary and many other scholars um, globally. But they have provided short sketches of every single book in the Bible. Five to eight minutes. A little beautiful. I'm going to give you an example of the one from Haggai today. Because before we dive into this book, this video really in five minutes can do what I couldn't do in 50. And then I'm going to make some comments, and we're going to start part one of It's Time to Build. Everybody say, It's Time to Build. So over the next four weeks, we're going to unpack this short, little, post-exilic prophet named Haggai. And it's going to be so awesome. But to start that conversation, take a look at this video. It's five minutes, just so you know. The book of the prophet Haggai. It's one of the smaller prophetic books, but crucially important in the overall story of the Hebrew Bible. So for centuries, the Hebrew prophets have been accusing Israel of breaking their covenant with God through idolatry and injustice, and they warned that God would send the great empire of Babylon to take out Jerusalem, destroy the temple, and haul off the people into exile. And it all happened in the year 587 BC. But that wasn't the end of the story. The prophets also believed that there was still hope, and that God would one day bring back a transformed remnant of his people, Israel, to live in the new Jerusalem, where God's presence would live in the midst. Now, when we turn to Haggai, the year is 520 BC, nearly 70 years after the exile. And the Babylonian Empire has recently collapsed, and the world is now ruled by the Persians. Now, they allowed to return any exiled Israelites who wanted to go back to Jerusalem, which still lay in ruins. And so under the leadership of a high priest named Joshua and Zerubbabel, an heir from the line of David, 
And the group of exiles, they all returned and began to rebuild the city and their lives. Remember the story from the book of Ezra, chapters 1 to 6. So our hopes are hot, and the future seems very bright, but it's not, actually. At least from Haggai's point of view. The book is into four sections that summarize Haggai's message given to the people of Jerusalem over the course of four months. He opens by accusing the people of misplaced priorities. And so, yes, they have come back to Jerusalem, but they're spending all of their time and resources rebuilding their own fancy houses, while the temple still lay in ruins from its destruction from seven years ago. So Haggai asks, are your own houses any more important than your allegiance to God? This neglect, Haggai says, is tantamount to the covenant rebellion of their ancestors which is why the land is still unproductive, why they've been struck with famine and drought. And here Haggai's quoted from the list of the covenant curses in the book of Deuteronomy. And so Haggai's challenging words are followed by a story of the people's response. Remember also the story in Ezra chapter 5. We're told that Zerubbabel, Joshua, the remnant of the people were provoked by Haggai's message, and they were motivated. They started rebuilding the temple. So in the next section, Haggai follows up one month later, and he addresses some problems of shattered expectations among the people. So the temple that they're rebuilding is really unimpressive. It's nothing compared to the glory of the temple Solomon built there some five years earlier. And so morale was really low for finishing the project. And so Haggai reminds the people of the great prophetic promises of the future kingdom of God and about this temple. He draws from earlier prophets, especially Isaiah and Micah, about the new Jerusalem and that it would be the place from which God would redeem the whole world, and where all nations would come and participate in God's kingdom, resulting in an era of peace. And so the temple, it plays a key role in God's plans for the future. And Haggai calls on the people to work in hope, despite the disappointing circumstances. In the third section, Haggai follows up two months later with a call to covenant faithfulness. And he engages some priests in a conversation about ritual purity. Remember all the key ideas from the book of Leviticus. So he says, if someone goes and touches a dead body and becomes ritually impure or marked by death, and then they go and touch some food, is that food impure too? And the priests, knowing the book of Leviticus, say, yes, it's impure. And then Haggai turns this into a parable. He says, this is how it is with the people of Israel and what they're putting their hands to in rebuilding the temple. If the current generation doesn't humble themselves, if they don't turn from injustice and apathy, then Haggai says whatever they build with their hands, including the city temple, will be impure too. Haggai's challenge is that it's only by true repentance and covenant faithfulness that their building efforts will result in God bringing his kingdom and blessing. And so in a sense, Israel's future lay in their hands, not waiting for his people to be faithful. And so the choice that Haggai's laying before the exile generation is very similar to the challenge Moses gave the wilderness generation before entering the land. Their obedience will lead to blessing and success, while faithlessness will lead to ruin. The book concludes with Haggai's summary of the future hope of God's kingdom. He's going to make the new Jerusalem the center of this glorious international kingdom. And from there, he will confront and defeat evil of the nations. He reminds people of the defeat of Pharaoh's army in the Exodus story. God will fulfill here his promise to David and establish the king from his line. And in Haggai's day, that was represented by Zerubbabel. And so the book ends with the choice of a bright future just hanging there. So the question is, will Haggai's generation be faithful to God? Will they experience the fulfillment of all his promises? And Zerubbabel, will he be faithful? Will he turn out to be the Messianic king? And you have to just keep reading into the final.
final two books of the prophets, Zechariah and Malachi, to find out. But you can see how this little book contains a great challenge to every generation of God's people, that our choices really matter, and that the faithfulness and obedience of God's people is part of how God has chosen to work out His purposes in the world. And so this surprising truth should motivate humility and action in God's people as they look forward to God's coming kingdom. And that is the message of the book. Amen. So just go watch that for the next four weeks and you'll really understand what the book of Haggai. Shake your head at me if you kind of understand a little. One percent of what was just spoken. Okay, the big framework of the book. That God's people find themselves exiled from the land they promised their ancestors. The, the, the hotbed, the place where heaven and earth overlapped, overlapped is sufficient, <laughs> was the temple where God's fire and glory and the ark of his mercy and the, the tablets that they received in the wilderness. And if the temple destroyed, all of the promises attached to the nation of Israel are in shambles. Because there's no presence, there's no place to worship, there's no place to offer sacrifices to cleanse sin. And so the situation that Haggai's generation find themselves are dire. And I want to propose to you, we in the West are in a very similar situation. How are we going to build for the future? What does it mean in our day to become God's peculiar people? What would it look like if God's purposes became priorities in our lives, even above our own preferences in general? These books are supposed to agitate us so that they will activate faith in us to believe His promises are still for today. And Ezra chapter 3, verse 3 through 5 is, is a little bit of a larger uh, a book written at the same time that Haggai the prophet ministered. So in your study later this week, you can go read the book of Ezra. I really encourage you to read Ezra. It'll take you 20 minutes, 25 minutes, and then go right to Haggai. And you'll see, oh my goodness, Haggai's in the book of Ezra. It's really cool how they work together. So that's the backdrop to this little tiny book of 37 verses or whatever it is. It was during this time that the second temple, Solomon's temple was destroyed. One of the seven wonders of the earth was destroyed because of the rebellion and the, the covenantal infidelity that Israel to the north had and Judah to the south had. The, the very center, the capital of their city, Jerusalem, was destroyed, leveled, demolished. And the pagan king Nebuchadnezzar even went into the temple of God and took the sacred things. How many know? It doesn't how many ever hit rock bottom, I should say? Many, many of you This is rock bottom, rock bottom central. But how many know one of the beautiful things about rock bottom is that when you're there, the only way is up. And for the nation of Israel, and for the people of God, in this moment of great, just tragic, uh, Hope deferred and destroyed and all of the promises that they've been given and the covenants and the prophets and the law and the deliverance from Egypt and Exodus. And are all of these promises done? But how many know, if you're tracking with us in the Bible reading, through Deuteronomy, God lays out all of these blessings for obedience. And then four times as 
But right there in Deuteronomy 30, God says, But even in the land that I will exile you, if you turn to me and repent, I will bring you home. And it's such a good promise that no matter where you find yourself today, the story is not over for you. Whether you find yourself exiled, you don't feel at home, you feel lost, the hopes in your heart, or what you thought your life was going to be, I want you to know if you've got oxygen pumping in your lungs, your story's not over. God can reach you in the place of exile. He can reach you in the place of feeling isolated and scattered and fragmented and broken. In fact, He loves to come to us in that place to show us His goodness and His love. So Ezra, he's this, he's this high priest during this 50 to 70 year period after Jerusalem is, is destroyed. And here in Ezra chapter 3, God moves on a pagan king named Cyrus. And he says, some of you Israelites can leave this place of exile. You can go back to your home and start rebuilding the temple. Come on, how many know God can move on anybody's heart to accomplish his purposes and plans? And so he let some 42,600, I think, I read. Literally, it's numbered in Ezra chapter 2. You don't have to take my word for it. It's in there. They list all of the exiles that they go home. So some 40-some-odd thousand people leave exile. They return back to Jerusalem to begin the rebuilding process. And it's in this time. The temple was leveled, the, wall, the walls were destroyed, Israel was in exile, but God's promise to restore his people was still going to be fulfilled. With God's house in ruins and there's no walls of protection, God's people were united to begin to build. And what did they begin to build first? The military? Their economy? Their government? Did they restore the Davidic dynasty and get the right guy in office? What was the first thing these exiles who came home, what did they begin to build? They assembled as one man in Jerusalem. Despite their fears of the people around them, they began to rebuild the altar on its foundation. I want you to see the scandalous, from the arm of flesh and the human perspective, how stupid this would have been. The, the, the Temple Mount is, is in this place where it's very easy to see. How many know when things are elevated, it's easy to see them from multiple angles? Oh, yeah. And at this point, Israel has no, there's no army, there's no, there's no infrastructure, there's no security or safety net. All they have is the word of the Lord that God released to a pagan king that it's time to go home and build. And I want you to see that the stupidity from a human perspective, but the wisdom from a kingdom perspective that the first thing that they would build is an altar. Imagine, has anyone seen an old construction site? And you've seen, sometimes at the very beginning of those spaces, it looks more like chaos than it does a construction site. Am I talking to anybody? Plus you have to do some demolition. There's rubble, there's rocks. Imagine this mount full of big boulders and rocks. Remember Solomon's temple. So 70 years previous was one of the wonders of the world. Dying, elaborate. Imagine on the heap of this rubble, these humble exiles who kind of feel like they're like living on a bar of time, the same kings that we come home, but they still had neighbors surrounding them. There's no walls around the city to protect them. There's no army, there's no guard posted. So they go up this hill and they rebuild an altar. 
for God. And it's amazing that this is the first thing that they rebuilt. Because they figured if God's presence is with us, God's presence will protect us. And I want to say to you that if you posture your life to build your entire life around His presence, He is your provider, your power, your protection. God is utterly capable to take care of you. So they begin to rebuild the altar. And it's funny that the prophet Zechariah, which is right after our little book, Haggai, says this about Jerusalem. It's going to be a city without walls. Why? Because I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord. And I will be its glory within. So you see the exiles coming right in the center. Jerusalem, temple, and altar. First thing they build. I'm partial to the, to the altar. It's the truth. Before doing anything else. And how many know there's a lot of work to do? But our first work is to reestablish the altar. They began to build the altar, though the foundation of the temple had not even been laid. Someone say, first things first, buddy. First things first. Before one stone was laid, God's people built the altar. Could you imagine if this building, I know this building is not the temple you and I are, but just go with me metaphorically and pretend that you lived in this time period. That this building is leveled and all that there's left is a slab. And you were told to rebuild this huge elaborate building with all these weird doors and ways and who knows whether the front entrance or not. It's an inside joke if you've been around this All the bobs and the weaves and the hallways. But imagine how foolish you would look to the outside world if they saw us in all of this rubble. We built an altar for God's presence. This is what God told Israel to do. Establish a place my fire my presence. They were convinced that apart from God's presence, they could not fulfill God's purpose. Say it with me. Apart from God's presence, we cannot fulfill God's purposes. Presence and purpose go like this. Put your hands together. Presence and purpose. That which He calls us to, He wants to do in us first and then through us together. His presence. Israel without an altar is like a body without a soul. A church that wants to build on programs and busyness without a fiery hot center, an altar where God can come and move and breathe is like a body without a soul. I love this from our, from our founder. Did I skip it? This is from the founder of the Nazarene movement some hundred years ago, a guy named P.F. or Z. Read this with me out loud, if you can read it. A genuine revival will come only by the fire of God from an open heaven, in answer to some soul or souls who dare to rebuild the altar of God and put the wood in order and place it upon it, a complete sacrifice and trust God against all odds. I like my man P. Edward Z. So, Ezra reminds us, Ezra is the setup to Haggai. He began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. 
even though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. Do you see the kingdom principle here? I know we don't live with stone altars and animals and incense anymore. Those days have gone in and through because of Jesus' once and for all sacrifice. But do you see the principle? You see the posture of these exiles coming home. The posture is, God, your presence first. God, we want to please you. God, we want this, what used to distinguish us way back in Exodus 33 and 34. Your presence among us. We want to restore that posture where your fire and your presence become the primary thing at the center of our community. Shake your head at me if you understand so I can move on. The burnt offerings represented a few things. Prayer, a place of supplication, where God's people could offer their concerns and their struggles. And I want you to know God knows your heart and He loves when you lay it there before Him. I want you to know that when, when we're building the altar and we're calling the church to, uh, to a renewed vision for prayer, you don't have to fix yourself up before you go to God right as you are. Come as you are. Lay it before him. Let that be your offering. It was a place they could offer thanksgiving. Did you know God loves to be praised and thanked for all the good things he does? For the, the beauty that he is. Atonement for sin. And for friendship and fellowship to be restored. So God's people get released. It's time to build. First thing they build is an altar. But how many know, when we seek to obey God, we are usually met with opposition. Can I get an amen? That amen was pretty weak. If you take a step out for God, usually there's some sort of counter move. And so when we see this, as we see when, when, when they began the work, there was opposition. And Ezra, again, the backdrop to Haggai, Ezra 4.24 writes these sobering words. The work of rebuilding was stopped. Has anyone ever started something and you were zealous, you were encouraged, you were full of faith and full of hope and I can't wait to obey and then you had a little opposition and all of a sudden you're like, oh, where'd God go? Am I the only one? Come on, don't be dishonest in this house. How many know opposition is really an opportunity to press in? Opposition, like building muscles, is how we really figure out what's in the inside. When we brave the winds of opposition, we find out, is God sufficient just to start a thing, or is he sufficient to sustain a thing until it's fulfilled? So the work stops. And maybe you're in a season of stopping. Maybe you're in a season where you're exhausted. Maybe, maybe you're just, maybe your soul is just feels like it has holes in it because of the season you just came through, or the season you're currently in. I want you to know that even if you're in a season of stop, God has and knows a way to find you in your stop states. The story wasn't over in Ezra 4:24. It is in this moment of stoppedness. God raises up a prophetic voice. If you're in a season of stop, don't go get busy doing a bunch of stuff. Wait for the voice of the Lord to be released into your spirit. If you're in a season of discouragement and despair, don't start reaching for all the innumerable options to, 
descendant of Edo. I'm sorry, dude. Prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the guy we heard about from the video, and Joshua, the other guy we heard about, they set to work to rebuild the house of God, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Listen, when we're in a rebuilding season, we are not allowed to just rely on human intelligence and wisdom. We need the voice from heaven to sustain and underwrite the whole work. Why are we doing the altar? Chad, don't you know how much work needs to be done out there? Don't you know how many groups we need to form and how many teachings we need in schools? And we, we have all of this in our heart. But if we don't have a culture of revelation where the prophets can hear the voice and release the heart of the Father, we're not going to be encouraged to make it for the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. The altar comes first. And when the altar is established and sustained by morning, noon, and night, worship, word, and prayer follow with a lifestyle of loving obedience. Wherever your best prayers take you in that culture, the Lord wants to release a voice so we can be a part of building something that outlives us. Man. So good. I like the word. Haggai's purpose was to remind the people of their priorities. They started building and they got sidetracked. Am I talking to anyone here today? Does anyone get sidetracked? I'm not just saying sidetracked with the big, bad, ugly thing, but like the decent, sort of okay, good thing. They were God's kingdom on the earth and the only witness to the nations to the divine truth. If they proved faithless, it would damage God's reputation. Just read all of the prophets. His name, his name, his name, his name. And I want to propose to you that right now in the West, right here in this city, right now in this little church, this little flock, this little body, God is inviting us in this posture and in this place of being rebuilt what does it mean to be the people of God? To not get entangled by the other voices of power and prestige and these voices that call us to good things but not God things. These voices that say, oh, just, just we need God's voice. We need God's priorities restored to the house so that what we build outlives us. I had this word that I just think is so good, and I'm an alliterative that's what I do. In exile, God invites us to the margins for the sake of the masses. This exiled community had an unbelievable opportunity from their millions and their glory days under King David and King Solomon to now just several thousand. They had an opportunity in that posture, in that place of being exiled to rebuild and to rediscover their true purpose, mission, identity, what they even existed on the earth for. 
And I want to propose to you in America that as we read the statistics about the shrinkage of church and the generations that don't like God, and we can read that and get discouraged or say, whoa, we can go with God to the margins and rediscover the centrality of his heart and his purposes and his mission. And when we begin to rebuild in this post-everything culture, what we build will outlast trends and opinions and popularity. It'll actually be his heart. So in this place of exile, he invites us to the margins where we lose our place at the center with this place where it was about power and about do what we want. And this kind of he invites us to the margins in his mercy because it's at the margins that the Holy Spirit begins to speak. When you're entangled in the mess of the center, the diluted, false, fake, it's really hard to when you're in a state of compromise, it's hard to hear the voice of the Lord. Can I get an amen? It's in those wilderness places, the margins where, where you lose all the fat and you, you, you're, you're hungry for a word because of that season of consecration and fasting and hunger. And it's in that space and place where when we grow thin, God's voice grows thick. And he begins to speak to us. All throughout the Bible, I, can't, I could just quote, I mean, I'm not going to, it'll derail the talk. God's people are... They're called to be foreigners in exile, citizens of another kingdom right in the midst of whatever kingdom or nation they find themselves in. This is our identity. This posture of being at the margins for the sake of the masses is God's mechanism to keep us to fidelity to the covenant. The the closer we get to power and prestige and we start diluting the message and then we start Oh, that's not that important because I don't want to confront this guy or gal because there's this messiness when we get married to other things other than Jesus. <laughs> the Bible also calls us strangers or pilgrims. It's in the margins we rediscover the Messiah, the God who went to the margins to restore Israel to himself and then through Israel the nations. I mean, just read the Gospels. He just built his whole kingdom ministry on the margins. So the Lord says this. Hear this. This is a word from his heart. Do not fear the season of, that's a big word. (laughs) Say it with me. Discombobulation. Just bob your head like this. This is discombobulation. How many of you feel it? When, when marriage is redefined, how many feel the season of discombobulation? Things that used to not pass now are celebrated. I mean, guys, we can either freak out or we can go to the margins with the Spirit. And in this season, He can shake us and that which is not from Him can fall off. And that which He wants to build in us actually provides a context and a platform to release His prophetic voice in the earth. But it's a necessary season to be discombobulated. What used to be isn't, but now, God, what are you saying? Does anyone feel that in the cultural moment we live in? And we can grow bitter or we can rebuild an altar. We can, well, it used to be like this and it used to be, or we can say God's always wanting to rebirth and renew and resurrect and do a new thing right in the midst of the old. That's who God is. That's what he wants to do. And I want to say that there is a healthy deconstruction that's happening right now in the West that is beautiful. It's beautiful. Now the devil can breathe on it and leave you to deconstruct everything where you lose the gospel, the word, the centrality of Christ, the atonement, and whatever. How many know we ain't doing that? Heck no. You can deconstruct yourself to death. Eventually God says, okay, I want to rebuild you now. 
you've deconstructed long enough. You let go of the trappings and the diluted and the weirdness and you kind of compromise there. But when we come to him after that healthy season of reconsidering, what does it mean to be God's people? God says, I want to build you up again. I want to rebuild from the foundations. I want to rebuild with a people at the center of it. There is an altar for my presence, my voice and my word. Come on, somebody, say amen. Amen. The essentials of Christ and his kingdom, the cross, the covenant that was ratified through the blood of the lamb, the word and the spirit. These are essentials. Everyone say these are essentials. The centrality of the gospel, the centrality of the community the gospel creates and the mission of the gospel community people, the centrality of prayer and worship as an all-of-life lifestyle offering to God, the centrality of obedience. I said it, and I mean it. The centrality of orthodoxy. How many know we live out of our thoughts? How many know God wants the church to have the mind of his son, Jesus Christ? But he doesn't just want us to live in our heads. He wants what's in our heads to live through our hands. And then orthopraxy, right practice. Where it's not just, hey, let me tell you what I believe. It's let me show you what I believe. Right practice. And then this is a big one right now in our cultural moment. Orthopathy, which is a sense of well-being. Emotional wholeness. How many know we live in a culture that is fragmented and broken, but there's a solution in and through Jesus Christ. Our, our, our sense of well-being. We've, we've never had more money, but also, Brene Brown, just Google it. She has the ultimate quote. We've never been more moneyed, more salaried, more, and more medicated, more depressed, anxious. I'm not mad or sad. It's just true. How many know God wants to restore to the church and the earth a sense of wholeness, emotional well-being? Thoughts, hands, hearts. Oh, boy. This is where we are. And I want to propose to you there's no better place to be. Because you know who's still on his throne? You know who's not done with his church? Nor will he ever be done with his church. He's like sort of committed to her, like to marry her forever. All right. Yeah. There I am right there. Boy. I have to at least read one verse from Haggai. Maybe it's a five-week sermon series. In the second year of King Darius, this is, now we're diving into the book. That was all intro. Take a deep breath. Woo! On the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel and Joshua, the governor and the priest. This is what the Lord says. Read it with me. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Read it with me. Is it time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. 
Give careful thought to your ways. Right there, write that in your journal, your prayer book, your iPhone, whatever you're doing to take notes. That is the phrase of talk number one. Give careful thought to your ways. Or as one of my spiritual fathers says, think about your thoughts. Give careful thought to your ways. Remember the story, the backstory of Ezra. They started the work and then they had opposition. And in that place of opposition, instead of picking back up the work the Lord told them to do, they began to build their own thing. Am I talking to anyone out there? You got discouraged because many times when you set out to build the Lord's thing, there is a sense of delayed fruit, delayed uh, realization of the promises. Am I talking to anyone today that knows about the delay? All of you who have ever followed Jesus know about the delay, even if you're not raising your hand. The Lord said to do it, but when we went out to do it, we didn't see the immediate fruit. So many times in that moment, we can turn back, shrink back in fear instead of realizing this is all part of the journey. The delay many times is the Lord's doing. Say that with me. The delay many times is the Lord's doing. So there's no sense of, okay, I started to obey his word and then I got sidetracked to do my own thing. And then how many know when the Lord says to do something, he will see it through, but we got to stay with him. We got to stay with him. His opening charge, Haggai, is that they in their discouragement put their own concerns before God's. They left the unfinished temple. They thought the altar was good enough. Got a little opposition. Now let's build our own house. And what I want to say is this, that the bummer is many times when we set out to obey God's voice, we can get derailed and miss out what he is saying and doing because we're absorbed with our own thing. Does that hit, any, does that hit anybody lovingly in the heart? So the prophet says, dude, and do that. Give careful thought to your ways. Haggai was able to call a weary, discouraged, self-indulgent community of his peers woo, to a renewed commitment to things that were far more important than their own personal and mundane concerns. Okay. We live under the illusion that our houses are more important and essential for flourishing and fruitfulness than God's house being established as a functional reality than God's house. And Haggai is that little 37-verse book that just is a burr in our side. <laughs> what are you building? What are your priorities? Yours above mine or God's above yours? Give careful thought to your ways. And then he does this, and I'm, oh, this is so the tail end, because it's all downhill from here. Sort of, ha, because he's about to tell him to go up a hill. Wait, <laughs> all right. So the prophet, you get it. They started to build, discouraged, started, okay, forget the temple, I'm going to do my own thing. Then God raises up a prophetic voice. Stop doing your own thing, get back to doing God's thing first. Shake your head at me if you understand. And then he gives them a parable. He explains to them why it's important to think about what they're doing. Look at this and tell me if it describes anyone's experience here. You've planted much but harvested little. You eat but you never have enough. Anybody? You drink but never have your fill. You put on clothes but you're not warm. 
You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Come on, the prophets are needed. They're poetic, they're beautiful, they're dynamite. This is what the Lord says. Give careful thought to your ways. What was the scenario? You got clothes, but you're shaking. You got fields, but there's nothing you're harvesting. You're drinking, but you're not, your thirst isn't quenched. You're eating, but you didn't have your fill. You earn money in exile, but you're putting them in purses with holes, so what you bring in immediately gets brought out. Am I describing anyone's life of trying to do things in your own will, a strength, and agenda? This is what the prophet's saying to Israel. Think about what you're doing. If it's your priorities first, then you're the one that has to underwrite the thing you think is your priority. If it's my priorities first, I will underwrite it. We'll get there. So he says, give careful thought to your ways. Go up to the mountains. Come on, somebody say mountains. Bring down the timber. <laughs> Build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be, honest, be honored. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty. Read this last one with me. Because of my house which remains a ruin while each of you is busy with your own house. I can't sugarcoat it. I love the prophets. They just say it. Think about your life. Are you living the hustle and bustle? Are you busy doing good things but don't have enough? Are you living an unsustainable pace Work hours, rest habits, diet and exercise. Are your relationships whole and healthy? Think about what the prophet's saying. When you do your thing, you're the one that has to underwrite it, sustain it, provide for it. Think about it. Are you sufficient to maintain that? Think about it. We're not machines. We're not just producers and consumers. He's calling us to be his people. His sons and his daughters. You ever had a sense that you were striving for something, but you ne- you just, you're dying to taste the fruit of the striving? The prophet says, give careful thoughts to your ways. Stop. Think. <laughs> this is my favorite line when I wrote this message. What has been isn't what has to be. Think about your life. Spirit, soul, and body, relationships, economic. Think about your life. Am I building God's house? Did I stop when the discouragement came and just went to my own agenda, my own purposes, my, me, 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 me? The prophet just, inv- he just issues an invitation. Give thought. Are you experiencing the life that Jesus Christ died to give you? The full life. Yeah, it involves a cross, but you got to die to live in the kingdom. Are you experiencing, or is it never enough? The prophet says, stop. Think about your life. Is your peace directly tied to what you possess or what you don't possess, or is it the outflow of the personal empowering presence of God? Or does your peace, like your gas tank, fluctuate? 
Think about your friend circle. Does your friend circle lift you up and encourage you to want to be more faithful and fruitful in Jesus? Do you want to actually become like those people that you're spending all your time with? Does your soul feel at rest in God's presence, or is your mind always racing on what needs to do next? Israel got distracted in the rebuilding. The church at Cornerstone, we can get distracted in the rebuilding. The prophet right here in chapter one says, stop, think about your thoughts. Think about your priorities. I wrote this as a thought. God says, I don't want to just deliver you from exile. I want to establish you to become a people so that a place for my glory to, glory to dwell. I want to live so close to you that out of the closeness of that proximity relationship, the flourishing that flows from my presence begins to touch your marriages, your friendships, your finances, your relationships. So the prophet says, get out of your houses and go up the mountain. Come on, this is the evangelist preacher in me now. Come on, somebody. Go up the mountain. In ancient Near Eastern thought, mountains were always where they thought the gods dwelled. I just feel like it's a prophetic picture. Consecrate yourself again. Think about your thoughts. It's not about how you start. It's how you live the sustained life of yes to my spirit and my voice. Go back up the mountain, get the wood, come back down, and realign your priorities around my presence. Go up the mountain. Get another perspective. How many know it is a crummy perspective to build your vision of life out of a state of compromise and complacency and hurt? Well, we had opposition to build the Lord's house, so let's just build our own. You need to get up on a mountain and see God's perspective, God's vantage point, God's agenda. And I want to say that apart from his presence, we will always think the most pressing issue is our own thing. Come on, that's a good one. And then we live under the tyranny of the moment instead of living out of the revelation of his goodness and his presence and his perspective. <sighs> Give careful thought to your ways. Say it with me. Give careful thought to your ways. This is why Jesus' very first message ever was repent. One commentator literally says it was a call to stop. What story am I living in? Who's the king in charge of that story? What world am I building towards and what's my place in it? Stop. Repent. Metanoia, what does that mean? Rethink. You see how Jesus fulfills the prophet's longings. His first message is, what you're building, what you're striving to do, all the things that keep you up at night, stop, repent, think, rethink. Someone say, it's in the rethinking. <laughs> and then we respond to what he's saying. Are you tracking with me? Repent. And this one-liner, I love it. What has been isn't what has to be. The prophet Haggai, give careful thought to your ways. Jesus, the king of glory, stop, rethink everything in light of me. 
how about we try it his way instead of our way for a change? <sighs> how many think God knows what to do in this moment we find ourselves in? All right, we have to hurry and then I'm done. Haggai builds on his argument, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mount, on the grain and the new wine, the olive oil, everything else on the ground produces, on people, livestock, all the labor of your hands. That, I, anyway, that's heavy. When God makes a covenant with the people, he includes the place that those people dwell. Are you tracking with me? Then Zerubbabel, the governor, and Joshua, the high priest, and the whole remnant. Say remnant. They, the people, they what? Obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord. It's in, the, it's in the Hebrew. Wow. <laughs> How many have spent so much energy? Why is my life in shambles? Why am I a wreck? Why? And you failed to stop, look up, and actually check in with the one who made life, who is life. Why is time seemed, why am I a slave to the clock? Why, why does it never seem to be enough? And, and you live in this frazzled, hurried distraught place and I'm not saying this to shame you I'm giving you the prophetic word from Haggai give careful thought to your ways is it his priorities or yours and if your priorities are first guess what today that doesn't have to be the story going forward you can heed the voice of the Lord repent stop begin to allow his voice his word his truth the community that bears his name to foster and facilitate a lifestyle aligned with God's purposes and presence and power and i want to say it's in the place of drought disarray and dis where it feels like there's no hope god wants to speak into your life today if you feel like man i am a messed up case well welcome to the family God wants in that place to release his voice. Your story is not over. What has been isn't what has to be. Give careful thought to your ways. And this is it. This is the last verse. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. This is like the best message anyone could ever give us. Read it with me. I am. One more time. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord, uh-oh, he stirred up the spirit. Come on, someone say, he stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the governor, and the spirit of Joshua, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. Do it in our day, Lord. Woo! And then look, look what happened. Here's how that verse ends. Then they came and began to work on the house of the Lord their God again on the 24th day of the sixth month. You know why I love the prophet and why he included all these time indicators? 
Because God's voice always breaks into a specific time, situation, circumstance, people, and place. God, he never speaks in a vacuum. He always speaks to a people in a place and a purpose. God always has a bullseye of his heart for a people if we'll press in to hear his voice. If we'll let the Holy Spirit stir our spirits to rally around a vision that's burning in his heart and we give ourselves to it, we begin to build his thing and we begin to watch, whoa, our house is being taken care of. I don't know, that's kind of biblical. Why do you worry about clothes, what you wear, what you'll eat or drink? I think someone said that. Oh, Jesus. Don't worry about your life, your own house. Seek first my kingdom and my righteousness. All of these things will be given to you as well. The Spirit, this is what we were just crying out, that the Spirit would stir a faithful remnant at Cornerstone Church not so we can be a holy, whoa, look at us club, but that the remnant can become leaven that can change an entire city's history. Because we've come out from the compromise, from the dullness of heart, from the, the, the deafness of hearing. We've heard his voice. We rebuilt the altar. We've said yes to building his thing over and above our thing. And in that place, God begins to build a people that can show forth to the world his goodness and glory and grace. I love it. The Spirit is faithful to stir. And I want you to know the Lord is stirring us up. He's stirring us. He wants to invite us to build together, to become a people who've got our priorities right who seek to create a culture rallied around his word and his presence so that it doesn't just impact us. What was the commandment tied in Exodus 20? Have no other gods before me. Obey my voice. No graven images. What was the promise? There is a thousand generation blessing to those who will love me and place me first above all things. Come on, how many want their kids, their grandkids, their future kids, their great grandkids to experience the blessing of God on their life? I just wish it was way more mysterious. It's plain and simple. Is it easy? No, it'll cost you your life. That's why there's an altar. I just love the gospel. He paid the ultimate price so that we could just, we could give what we have, who we are, all that we have. Who here today would say, Chatty, my priorities are jacked. I want God to realign them for his purposes. Chad, I know my priority, my own thing. I get so preoccupied and I don't have these healthy life-giving rhythms that reinforce the prioritization of his presence and his word and his house. And I, I need God to, I need to stop and give thought to my thinking. Well, right now, just say, Holy Spirit, show me what is out of whack. You don't have to get golf guilty and heavy and condemned. Just receive the word of the Lord and say, God, let the Spirit illuminate the place of my priorities in my heart. Lord, show me. Are you my first priority? Am I giving myself to building your house, which is God's people, building the altar? Or am I just consumed with me? 
How many have ever experienced the fruit of being consumed with me? How did it work out for you? Did your relationships flourish and thrive? Did it go well at your workplace when you were just the selfish me man or woman? Guys, it's God's wisdom that he says, carry your crosses, seek first my kingdom, and I'm going to straighten your life out so that you'll be a representative of what life was always supposed to be like. Life in my kingdom, life in my presence, life according to my word and wisdom. Wherever you're at, whatever you're building, the voice of the Lord pierces through all the mess and says, give careful thought to your ways. Come into agreement and alignment with my priorities. Repent. Stop. Rethink. Respond. Repent. Stop. Rethink. Respond. How many know that is the life cycle of a believer? Amen. How many know it ain't a one and done activity? Oh, good. I think God's thoughts now. I'm good. I'm not saying you have to keep repenting for your old sins. That's baloney. Read Hebrews 5 and 6. And I'm not a propagator of you have to keep visiting your vomit. 2 Peter chapter 3. I'm saying perpetually God's inviting us to rethink, to repent, to stop, and to keep doing it His way. That's a lifestyle. Repent. Stop. Rethink. Respond. Respond. Seek. How many have need to get into the spiritual gym to work on their seeker muscle? You're weak. You're tired. I grow weary. Well, jump into the altar with us. It's just a spiritual gym. We're just learning to seek his face until we see his face. Your priorities. What yoke are you living under? What, what teaching? What, what, is it heavy? Is it heavy? Are you experiencing heaviness? The Lord's saying, prioritize me, my presence, and my kingdom. Throw those yokes off and receive the yoke of Jesus this morning. My teaching, my way. What are, his, what are his teachings? Read the Bible. Matthew 5 through 7 is a great place to start. Abide in me. Oh, I got someone right over here that really loves John 15 and over here. It's a lifestyle. Abide. Prioritize being with me. All right. Holy Spirit, I pray that as we close, you would speak to our people. You'd speak to us. The word of this message is give careful thought to your ways. Are my priorities aligned with God's? Do I experience what Israel experiences in the first 15 verses where I'm doing a lot, but I'm seeing a little? I'm drinking, but I'm not, I'm not satisfied. I'm eating, but I'm still hungry. I got clothes, but I'm still cold. Father, we come into agreement with your word, your priorities above our own, your kingdom above our own little kingdoms, your cross above our own prerogative and preference, your agenda above our own, your will above our own. Lord, this isn't some cruddy scenario where life shrinks if we get in a line with you. No, when we get cracked and bent and broken and we say yes to the altar and the cross, Lord, you bring us under your covering, under your provision, uh, into the space and place of flourishing when we do it your way. God, we heed the word of the prophet Haggai. 
Give careful thought to your ways. What has been is not what has to be. He's offering us an opportunity right now to come into agreement with him. Could you stand with your feet? I'm going to have Emily come and just play some keys. If, if you want specifically to get your priorities, I just want to invite you to come. And, and if you need to slip out, that's fine. But I just want to minister to, to you because that's, if that connects with your heart at all, you say, Chatty, I just want to respond. I'm going to humble myself. Ministry team, this is your cue. Come on up. We just want to pray for you. We want God to realign to rebuild and refashion your heart. If that's you, you want to just come on up. You say, I want people to, I want God to realign and restore priorities at his, his presence in my life. His presence. Ministry team, go ahead and spread out across the front. If you want prayer, come on up. Some of you are coming for prayer. That's beautiful. Let me just pray a, a, a closing prayer, and then if you need to go, you can slip out. If not, then come on up and receive some good ministry from his heart to your heart. I just thank you, Lord, for Haggai. This is where we're at. <laughs> Go up the mountain. Get a new perspective. Get my voice. Get my perspective. Build my house together. So, Lord, we just ask that you would straighten our houses, that you would release a voice of order. You'd release a beautiful voice of alignment in our hearts. That as we heed your voice, we would begin to experience life as you intended. So Holy Spirit, speak to your church, your beautiful people. May this become a holy remnant that begins to walk in alignment with God's heart, God's vision, and God's purposes together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Emily's going to play and sing. If you want prayer, come on up. If not, you're dismissed. We love you guys. We'll see you at the altar this week. Come on up if you'd like prayer.